I want to start with a piece that uh, Dallas Willard writes. Dallas Willard is a person quite like Richard Foster, who if you're interested in the spiritual disciplines and what you're going to hear me talk about today, as Pastor David said, uh, fasting and prayer, if you're interested in these types of things and learning about them, Dallas Willard is a great writer, and so is Richard Foster. Uh, Dallas Willard, the interesting thing about him is that he's a philosopher, and if you read most of what he writes, uh, you will think that it's for a certain audience, and it is, because he's a philosopher. But he has one or two books, maybe three or four books, that are for what I would call the reading public, and, uh, and one of them is The Divine Conspiracy, and that's something that both Pastor David and I are looking through, reading through as we uh, come to Matthew in this sermon series. That's one book. And uh, I think it took me about a year uh, to read through it, and he's kind of nodding. It took him about that long to read through it because it's, it's hefty stuff. Uh, you can't read. It's not a beach read. And then there is the great omission um, that, that touches on some of the same themes, but I think in a much more condensed way. And it's the great omission that I want to read uh, a couple of sentences from this morning as we think about the gospel of Matthew, as we come to the life of Jesus, and as we come to what the life and teachings of Jesus means for our own transformation, for our own lives. Um, and Dallas Willard is talking about the broken state of the soul in this part. And he's talking a little bit about sin, a little bit about the brokenness of the soul and the light that comes from the gospel. And so uh, hear this. It's It's natural role, the broken soul's natural role is to find the right way to act. The way that is just and right and that leads to what is good. When the person as a whole is committed to doing what is wrong and evil, the mind turns from reason to rationalization. From establishing what is right in order to do it, it turns to establishing to whatever is done is right and good, or at least necessary. That is madness. It is a new picture, now talking about the gospel, it is a new picture of the real world I actually live in. That world turns out to be made and governed by a person who loved this world and myself so much that he sent his son to save me from total ruin. I am unable to discover this on my own, especially surrounded as I am by layer upon layer of thought, feeling, and custom turned against it. He's talking about, hey, deacon, deacon, hey, 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 what you doing in church? Don't you got a newborn at home? All right, good to see you again. Uh, Bethany's here. Oh, okay. I suppose Adelaide is back there. All right, Purpose Family. Um, I'm sorry, I do that sometimes. Just interrupt the quote, interrupt the sermon, you know. You can't, Derek can't quite walk in a room and not be noticed, you know. Yeah, yeah, can't walk in quietly. He's a big guy. Um, Dallas Willard is talking about 
the soul, the broken soul, and the state of the broken soul, and how the broken soul is used to calling things that are not right, right. Things that are wrong, calling them right. And so if you're, if you're wondering whether or not your soul or someone's soul is broken, is diseased, is in a state of sinfulness, one of the markers is whether you begin calling things that you used to be clearly wrong, now okay, now acceptable, now even right. And, and, and his point is that the gospel is what comes into our lives, what comes into us in our hearing, in our, in our, in our faces, and makes us confront truth, makes us confront the layers of thoughts and feelings and behaviors that tricked us to believe what is wrong is right. And so that the spiritual disciplines, the, the, these practices that I will talk some about and that he talks about, that, that our small groups are working together, studying and pursuing, that we as a church will embody, like fasting and prayer, these spiritual disciplines are ways that God begins to deal with the layers in our lives, the layers in your thoughts, the layers in my attitude, the layers in our histories that tell us that the gospel is not true. So that the disciplines, the, the religious practices of prayer or fasting or giving or serving are, are, are opportunities not for comfort, but for us to be confronted by truth. So, so when we come to Matthew chapter 6 this morning, uh, we, we, we are met with, with Jesus' words, and he opens up chapter 6 by saying something like, Beware, take heed, just a minute, don't miss this. Let's read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 uh, together. I probably have a different version on my notes, so I'll turn around and read uh, with you. Uh, let's read this together. If I drop out because I have more talking to do, uh, you keep reading, okay? Let's read Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. Read it like you're not hot, okay? Let's go. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Keep reading.
This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do. For they disfigure their faces and show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is in heaven. will reward you. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. This is the word of God for us. Jesus opens uh, this part of his sermon. This really is a sermon series uh, that Jesus is preaching and that Matthew lays out. We're looking at the life of Jesus. We're looking in Matthew's chapter 5 and 7 at the teachings of Jesus. And when Jesus comes to Matthew 6 to begin this part of the sermon, he opens it up with uh, the language of be careful. And, and he opens his message, and I, I, resisted, I resisted making my opening something like that because I didn't want you to think I was crazy. Most of you, despite my refrain, already think I'm crazy. But, but Jesus opens his message by saying, take heed, notice this. And there is something in Jesus' opening, in his introduction, that says to us what he is about to say we can miss if we aren't careful. There is something in Jesus' introduction that is so forceful, that is so important, that if we don't take time to pay attention to what he's saying, we will miss it. Right away, we know in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus opens these words... Something is about to be said that if we don't hear him, it can be dangerous to us. Maybe we should listen to Jesus. And what he does is he begins to teach on the interior life. He begins to teach on your life, my life, the disciples' life inside their hearts. And, and so what we see Matthew beginning to do is talking about the religious practices that, that make us pay attention to what's happening in us by God. So, so in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we are hearing the teaching, hearing the sermon where Jesus is talking about our horizontal relationships, our interpersonal relationships. He's talking about love. He's talking about how to act in marriage. He's talking about how to contend with one another, how to relate to each other, how to befriend one another, and how our ethics come in the, in the context of relationships with each other. And in Matthew chapter 6, 
Matthew uses the same language to take our gaze from one another upward to God. And he begins to talk to us, not about how God transforms our relationships with each other, but he talks about how God begins to transform our relationships with God. And one of the tools that God uses to transform our relationships with God are the spiritual disciplines. And the spiritual disciplines that Jesus talks about in this particular chapter are giving, prayer, and fasting. Jesus talks about these practices, these these acts where we actively pursue something about our relationship with God. We actively pray, we actively give, we actively fast, and Jesus begins to instruct us on how we go about doing that. Now, now remember that, that this sermon series that we're preaching is, is about the life of Jesus and is about the transformative power of God. It's, it's about what, what we see Jesus doing and living and what we see Jesus doing and living in us. And, and these chapters and these verses and these conversations on Sunday mornings are, are opportunities for us to pause and to linger over certain parts of the New Testament, certain parts of the gospel. And so, and so this morning, we are going to pause over giving, over prayer, and over fasting. And, and, and I want you to begin to prayerfully ask the question of what it is God has to do uh, to to. to to strengthen your relationship, not with your neighbor or your friend or your family member, but with God. I want you to sit with a, a question on your hearts as you hear me, how it is that God causes you to encounter him. Because the spiritual disciplines, that's the purpose of them. That giving and prayer and fasting is not just for the sake of giving and praying and fasting. It is for the purpose of you and I encountering God and being changed by God. Jesus hovers over these three ways that we can relate to God. These three practices that train our gaze upward toward God, inward toward God. He, he, does, not, he does not concern himself with um, how uh, to go about praying. He doesn't get into the details of how often to give. He doesn't seem to, to get into all of the minutia of how to fast, when to fast, how often to fast. He, he seems to stand back from those details and to go uh, a little bit deeper and to deal with something called motivation. Say the word motivation. He does not talk about the rightness or the wrongness of these three things. No, Jesus is assuming that his disciples are already praying. He's assuming that they are already fasting. He's assuming they are already giving. They were doing this. They, they fasted with all of Israel probably at least once a month uh, or maybe up to uh, once a year rather, maybe up to three times a year as a people. Israel fasted together, a corporate fast. And so they were already, these Jews, fasting. Is this getting in the way? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. 
He's assuming that they're already praying. If they're, if they're, if they're Jews, they are probably praying uh, around 3 o'clock in the afternoon every day. Jesus is assuming they are already giving alms to the poor, that they are already spending their resources. He, he is not getting into these details. After all, I mean, God's house was the synagogue, was the house of prayer. And so he's talking to a group who knows something about these disciplines, and he gets to a depth here when he's talking about these practices. He's, he's talking to this group that knows these practices. And I want to say, some of you know a lot about prayer. Some of you know a few things about fasting. Some of you give all the time. Some of this is new for, for others in the, in the church this morning. But, but the temptation when we know something well and when you know something intimately is to lose grip on what that thing, what that act is all about. Uh, The temptation when you and I are familiar with something like a spiritual discipline is not just losing grip on the significance of the practice, but on why we do the practice itself. Why we pray, why it is we give, why it is we fast. And so the Savior's words goes right to the motivations for our lives. And this morning, I want you to begin thinking about why it is you do things called prayer. Why do you fast? Why do you give? Jesus is bringing these things, these acts of worship. All three of these acts are toward God. All three of these acts in Matthew's account of the sermon. Now, in chapter 5, we read of how our relationships with Christ, our relationships um, with each other are opportunities for Christ's righteousness to show up. So when, whether we're talking about marriage or divorce, whether we're talking about adultery, uh, those, those scenes in chapter 5 are opportunities for Christ's righteousness to be exhibited in those relationships. And Pastor David talked about that last week. In this chapter, we're hearing about what our relationship toward God should be about. And Matthew uses the same language when talking about your relationship with other people and your relationships with God. He's using the same language, and he's saying that the spiritual life, the Christian life, is not about one or the other. The spiritual life, the Christian life, is not about how you treat your neighbor alone, but it is how you relate to God. So Jesus talks first about giving. Now, now I, I'm going to say this because I don't, I don't know, I, we certainly don't talk about this very often, but if, if you're sitting here and you're waiting for an invitation to give to the church, you're waiting for an invitation to give money, to give time, to serve the church, here is your invitation. Because, because the church, the local church, needs what you have to give. The local church needs your time, needs your resources, and, and one of the failures that we, that we make is, is we often don't talk about it and we assume you know that we need you to give. We assume you know that the mission of the church is tied to the gifts that the church brings, that individuals bring to the church. So, so if you need an invitation to give, to give yourself, to give your stuff to the church, here it is. Here it is. There, there is no other topic that Jesus talks about in the New Testament more than money, in fact. So if you want to know whether Jesus has things to say about money, if you want to know whether Jesus has to say about how you spend money, that you spend money, uh, it's in uh, the Gospels. It's all over the Gospels. And so when he's talking about giving, 
giving here. That's a part of the message. But, but that being said, I want to say to you this morning that giving is not just about your money. It's not just about your time. And Jesus here is not even dealing with that in Matthew chapter 6. He's saying when you give, assuming that you will, when you give, I want to tell you how to do it. And, and to be clear, God, uh, and, and I like that Pastor Peter says this a lot when he's dealing with stewardship in his sermon series, he says God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. And I will tell you God doesn't need your money, but God will use your money. Okay? Okay? God doesn't need your money. God will use your money, but God is after something more than your money. God is looking for you to give something more than your money. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, is getting at that. He's not getting at alms. He's not getting at coins. He's not getting at cash. He's getting at motivations. He's getting at reasons for giving. And and he's putting before us a question, not how much you give or how much you make in relation to how much you give. He's putting before us this question of why you give. He's putting before us this issue of, okay, it's good that you give. I assume that you do. Why are you giving? So for you this morning, I have two questions. I have two questions for you uh, to think through as you hear Jesus, as you hear Jesus talking about when you give, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you think about and hear about Jesus, the first question that I want you to consider in your heart, to write down somewhere in your soul is how do we give more, but only so that God sees? In your life, how can you give more? How can you train your motives and your reasons by giving more, but only so that God sees? Now, now we don't need to get in the details because, frankly, I think Jesus put some language before us that is pretty impossible. I, I, I don't think, at least in our day, they didn't have wallets when Jesus was talking to his disciples, but it's not possible for me to get my wallet, pull money out of my wallet, and give it without using my other hand. I I just can't do it. My wallet is in my back right pocket and I'm left-handed. So it's not really possible for me to not let my left hand know what my right hand is doing. So if Jesus is saying that your one hand can't, no, it's, it's pretty impossible in a physical sense. But Jesus is saying, at least for us, to push this question, how do we give and God see it? How do we give and not make as our hope what people say about our gifts, what people will respond, or how people will respond. He's he's not saying that your gifts won't be seen. He's saying when your gifts are seen, is that the reward you're looking for? And in a minute, we'll get into this language of rewards. But, 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 but ask yourself this question this morning. Can I, can I give? Can I serve? Can I live in a way responding to Jesus, saying to me, there is one reward in the affirmation and the praise of people, or there is a reward from your heavenly Father. Now, now here's the second question. If there is no 
reward now. Can you pull, uh, Tyler, that, uh, the scripture six, uh, 6 and 1 back up, 6, 1 through 5. Can you bring that up in a second? If there is no reward now, if when, when Jesus is talking about a reward from your Father in heaven, if there is no reward now, and if the reward is entirely otherworldly, will you live these words? Look, look here, Jesus is saying, Uh, Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father. Notice Jesus is beginning to get into what you should do and what you should not do. And then he gets into what your father in heaven will do or won't do. And that's sort of the structure, the textual movement in the entire verse. And then in verse 2 he says, in the entire chapter rather, and then in verse 2 he says, so when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as hypocrites do. And hypocrites comes from that language of actors on stage, theater actors. They wear masks, they take off a mask, they put on another mask so you don't know who they really are. And Jesus is saying, don't give like the people you don't really know in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. The second time he says the word reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus never says what the reward is. Jesus never explains when the reward comes. And so my question for you is if God has nothing to give you because you give, if God has nothing to give you because you pray, if God has nothing to return to you because you fast, if there is no reward coming to you immediately, if this reward is something that comes in in the eschaton, in the last days of your life or after your life, will you Obey Jesus. Jesus talks about giving. He talks about praying. He talks about fasting. So let's, let's, let's make some observations about prayer. I, I, uh, I got a little nervous when Pastor David said that, I would, uh, that you would walk away with a theology of prayer. So uh, let's see where we go with this, because, because if you look at Matthew chapter 6, if you look at this chapter, prayer, this is the first uh, point of four in this t- uh, about prayer. If you look at what Jesus is doing um, and what Matthew is doing, he is making prayer the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Prayer is not just the center of chapter 6, but it is the center, it is the center of what Bible scholars call the center, the primary focus of Matthew's telling of this sermon. And I say that because prayer, uh, if Jesus, uh, if Jesus' words and his treatment of the topic in this chapter, uh, if, if, if it is true and it is, it is a sermon series all unto itself. Prayer is not peripheral to the teachings of Jesus. Prayer is primary in the teachings of Jesus. Prayer is not something that if I tried, I can spend uh, a minute or two and give justice to it. It is something that you and I have to spend our lives wrapping ourselves around because because it is the center. 
And so when you think about what we will do as a church in a few days, when you think about what we do when we gather on Sundays, we are not engaging in peripheral, secondary work. But prayer is the primary movement of disciples of Jesus. Prayer is not secondary in this text. It is primary. The second thing I'll say about prayer is that Jesus teaches his disciples in what most... uh, People who translate scripture and people who talk about scripture call the Lord's Prayer. You've heard the Lord's Prayer. Well, technically, this is not the Lord's Prayer. This is, this is the disciples' prayer that the Lord gives us. So this is really our prayer that the Lord gives. He gives us this model of prayer called the Lord's Prayer by most of us, the Our Father. And it, it, is, a, it is a prayer that belongs to us. And, and I, do, I do think our small groups or maybe one or two sermons can be spent on this prayer alone. But Jesus is saying about, I, I think one of the things you need to hear about prayer, uh, uh, the, the, a theology of prayer as we pray together, as you pray alone, as you read scriptures prayerfully, is that our prayers are not answered because we pray the right phrases and the right words. Even though Jesus is giving us a model of prayer, Jesus is not re- restricting us to the model that he gives. We don't get prayers answered. God doesn't hear what you say, be it when you whisper, when you groan, when you pray silently, when you pray with others, when you pray out loud. God doesn't answer your prayers because you say the right things, because you shift the phrases the right way. God answers our prayers because he is our heavenly father and it is our heavenly father's heart and desire to answer our prayers. This is a model of prayer, but the model is not meant to restrict you from what happens in your heart. The model is not meant to to constrain you to these words. It is meant to free you in the hands of a father who will answer prayers because he loves you. The third thing about prayer here, Jesus is talking about prayer. He's talking about uh, praying. And he, he is not, he is not uh, uh, bashing corporate prayer. He's talking about praying in the streets. He's talking, some translations talk about how the, the, the religious leaders pray and use big words as the hypocrites in the synagogues here in this to be honored by men. Uh, Jesus is not saying that you can't pray in the street. Jesus is not saying that you can't pray publicly in the synagogue. The synagogue, again, is the house of prayer. It's where we pray. Jesus isn't saying that corporate prayer is out. If he is against something, he is against the reward that we get from public prayer versus the reward that God gives. So when you come to our concert of prayer, when you come uh, to the moments of prayer in our worship services, in our small groups, when you go home and you bow, when you go home and you sit, when you go home and you wash dishes and you pray, when you go home and you clean and you pray, when your posture is a prayerful one, the question is not what words do you use, whether you pray out loud or silently. The question is, which reward are you looking for? The fourth thing about prayer here, and I think that this is really the guts of 
of where I can kind of stake my claim. The fourth thing about prayer in this passage is that Jesus seems to lock everything about prayer with forgiveness. There's a, there's a clasp. There, there is a lock. There is a, there is a connection that Jesus is making, a strong one, an impenetrable connection that he makes between forgiveness and prayer. He says, if you don't forgive, God won't forgive you. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. I don't think we can shirk these words. I don't think we can run past these words. I'm tempted to to do just that when I'm praying this, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm trying to get to what Jesus is really saying, when I'm trying to mine my soul for obedience or disobedience, I, I run past this and I do it pretty quickly in my own life and I don't think we can run past these words. I, I, think, I think we need to hear Jesus saying this again. If you don't forgive, God won't forgive. Now, right away, I can imagine that some of you are waiting for the gospel clincher. Some of you are waiting for the moment of grace. Some of you are waiting for the but. Some of you are waiting to, for, for Jesus to correct himself. Some of you are waiting for Jesus to let you off the forgiving hook. There is no release from these words. And so, and so hear Jesus, hear Jesus. And hear your own heart in your own way if you're anything like me saying, do we have to live this? Do we have to, do we have to pay attention to this? Do we have to be so transformed that this is what our lives look like? Is this the natural response to somebody who follows Jesus? These words get stuck in our throats. These words get stuck somewhere between our eyes, our brains, and our lips. Uh, we see them, we hear them in our heads, we process them, and we, we, you almost choke trying to read this if you do. If you don't forgive all of this language about prayer, all of this language about talking to God, communicating with God, all of this language about forgiveness of our debts, forgiveness of our debtors, for all of this language about leading us not into temptation. And Jesus ends the prayer by saying, if you don't forgive. Now, I'm not going to re-preach Pastor David's message from last week, but, but one of the things that he did, and he did so strongly, was point us back to the cross. He, he pointed us back to, that, to that, that, that excruciating hanging of Jesus. He pointed us back to the death of Jesus on the cross, that fantastic and incredible death. And, and, and he showed us, and, and he reminded us of the Jesus who is speaking these words to us. So I want you to remember... That Jesus, who is preaching and teaching in Matthew 6, is the Jesus who died a death on the cross for us. 
And so when you, when you hear Jesus, you are not hearing somebody who is not familiar, who is not well acquainted with forgiving people of their sins. This is a Jesus who forgave so much so, who loved so much so, who gave so much so to the people he was hated by that he died. So, so, so the first reaction, and maybe we have to train our reactions to Jesus, is to, is to say that Jesus who tells us that we must forgive is Jesus who himself forgave. And, and so Jesus who is telling us we must forgive is not telling us to do something that is impossible. He is anchoring his words in the reality that he is living. He is looking toward his cross, toward his death, and he says these hard words. Okay. Jesus dies for his enemies. Jesus forgives. He gives his life. Uh, but, but that's Jesus. I mean, I'm Michael. I'm not Jesus. That's the Son of God, the Savior. And so, so is there an out here? Maybe if we look at the original language, you know, this is English here. It, the Bible's been translated multiple times. Maybe, maybe the meaning of Jesus' words have gotten lost in translation. Maybe if we go back to the original, the original, the original, we can know what Jesus means. Maybe he doesn't mean the same thing that he lives. Maybe he means that he has a quality of forgiveness that is different from his disciples. You know how there are four or five words in Greek for love. Maybe there are four or five words in a Greek for forgiveness. So, so really, what, what, what could Jesus mean? Because, because you don't know. You don't know what I've lived, how I've been sinned against. And so for Jesus to come and say, forgive the way he forgave, that's, I mean, that, come on. I mean, Jesus can't mean that. I'm glad you asked about the original meaning. There, there, are, there are three. There are three. There are three. Uh, G- Jesus saying, forgive or your father will not forgive you. Forgive and your father will forgive you. Jesus is using language. What, does, what is he saying? Forgive, definition number one. Send away. Say that, send away. If you send away men when they sin against you, your Father will also send away you. Now, anchor this in language about sin and offense. So, if you send away the offense and the sin against you, your father will send away the sin and offense that you have sinned and offended against him. Definition number one, send away. Well, that, I mean, that's not really helpful for us because that seems to mean that we still have a lot of good impossible work to do. So what's the second definition of forgiveness? The second definition of forgiveness is, is permit. Everybody say Permit. This to me is even worse because this is, well, if you permit people when they sin against you, God, your Father, will also permit you. 
That's not much better. That's not much better. It's, it's not looking good, folks. Um, because Jesus is still, whether you parse the language to say, sin sins away, or whether you're saying, permit the sin and the offense against you, there's still a whole lot of soul work here. The last definition um, of forgiveness in Matthew, in this New Testament language of forgiveness, is to leave alone. I want you to imagine your life. And if you, or, uh, the last time somebody sinned against you, I mean, uh, maybe that was this morning, maybe that was uh, during the greeting time, maybe that was last week, maybe that was on your way to church. The last time somebody offended you, somebody sinned against you, however strong that offense, I want you to think about leaving that person alone. That just doesn't sound just at some level, right? I mean, I mean, how can that be right? If you have wronged me for me to leave you alone, can Jesus be asking me to forgive by leaving someone who has hurt me alone? Here's the thing. Jesus who forgave the unforgivable. Jesus, who, who permitted the impermissible, is speaking to us, speaking to his church. He's preaching to us that we too must forgive. And so my question for us, for you, for you in your life, for us as a church, because we get sinned against individually as a church, is, is there a sin, is there an offense, is there an act that when Jesus died on the cross, his cross did not include? Is there a sin that Jesus does not have in mind when he forgives you? Because we love the idea that Jesus is so open and so inclusive. He's so forgiving because it means that from A to Z, from the front to the back, from the left to the right, that all of us are forgiven are permitted to be in relationship with God, are allowed to live a life of liberty and freedom at a soul level when everybody tells you that your life and your past and your history should restrict your future. God has an amazing ability to say, I know all about your past and you have a blessed future. There is something so attractive about God. There is something about, about that God who says to you, no matter what you did, I love. And I forgive you. And I call you something different from what you have been. There is something, there is something so compelling and convicting about that God. And here's the thing. It is that God who says to us, the way I do that, you do that. I don't want to suggest that this is an easy sermon to live. I don't, I don't think the good ones are easy to live. I think, I think Jesus is putting before us something 
to reach. And, and there is a dance, there is a tension, there is a balance of preaching where we want to remind you that there is nothing you can do to earn the grace of God. There is nothing you can do to learn, or earn or to merit uh, the, the favor of God and, and what God says you are. You cannot work hard enough. You cannot do anything for it. You cannot put in enough effort to, to earn your place and your reward and what God says about you. It is true. And yet when you receive what God says about you, there, there is a smashing that Jesus brings to you because your life cannot be lazy if you are a disciple of Jesus. And you can't sneak out the back door of obedience to forgiveness because Jesus puts everything on this right I don't know what it means in your life. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why um, this is difficult for you. I know some of the things that make forgiveness difficult for me. But can you begin to pray if you haven't? God, make it possible for me to live See, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, let's get past that. Let's get back to Paul and grace. Let's get back to, you know, those parables. Let's get back to the ambiguous, well, what did Jesus talk about? Mustard seeds or let's get, let's get back to that. Let's, let, no, come back to the, to the very clear message of Jesus. And you ask God to help you live this. You ask God because you can't on your own anyway. Your righteousness doesn't come from your effort and your energy and your intellect. Can you ask God to give you what you need to face your past and your present with eyes and hands and a heart to forgive? Are you hearing me all quiet? The last thing he says in this passage is about fasting. Now, fasting in its uh, classical form is the, abs- the, the abs- uh, abstaining from food. We've, we've twisted and kind of changed fasting a little bit. Uh, you know, you can fast from Facebook these days, apparently. Um, but, uh, amen. Uh, but, but fasting in its classical form is abstaining from Food. It is, it is giving up meals, giving up nourishment that comes from food, giving up food to be reminded of God's sustenance. You give up food which you need, uh, and this is, what, this is what makes it such a huge deal to fast. Uh, fasting is a discipline that, that works to enlarge your view of God. Fasting is not just about losing, it's not at all about losing calories, although that might be, you know, an effect of fasting. Fasting is about you giving up food, giving up what you need so that you can see God as bigger and broader and more able to meet your needs. So, so the discipline of fasting is difficult. And I don't know, I don't know about you, uh, when I'm hungry, and there are people who can testify to this, when I'm hungry, I am, uh, uh, who? Honorary? Honorary. I was not going to say that word. Um, um, I was going to say my mood is a little impaired when I'm hungry. You know, I'm, I'm a little less patient. I'm a little uh, irritating, and I'm irritable. My blood sugar drops. And, I mean, this is all natural. This is biological. Sean, am I right? And this, this is biological, right? You need, yeah. No, come on. No, give me, an, give me a yes. Give me a, 
Yeah, exactly. You know, when you need to eat, you need to eat. That's why if you don't, you know, your head starts kind of doing different things and you, you know, you get dehydrated. You need this. But the thing about fasting is that fasting says as natural and as normal as eating is, as natural and as normal and necessary as food and drink are, To the human body, there is something more natural, something more normal, something more truly human than eating and drinking. And that is our need for God. And think about that. You know you need to eat. You need to eat. If you don't, you have about 40 days before we bury you, right? You know, you need water. You can't go more than three or four days without water probably, right? Especially in heat like this. You need it. And, and fasting, Jesus is talking about a discipline that says you take time in your life to remind yourself and to express to your God that you need God more than food. So, so church, my question to you is, is what do you need? I want you to think about your life and think about your morning, think about your afternoon, your evening, and all of the things that you've placed in your life that you need. And I want you to imagine yourself, imagine yourself saying that I need God more than those things. Some of you are workaholics and, and there's something in your mind that draws you to a need for work. You need to work. And, and some of you, some of you need to remind yourself as we fast as a church, as we fast corporately, that there are needs that are greater than your work, needs that are greater than your relationships, your closest friendships, and at a soul level, it is a need for God. Fasting says, God, as important as this thing is in my life, you are more important. As valuable as food in the classical form is, you are much more valuable. And Jesus is giving us the same language. When you fast, don't tell everybody about it. When you fast, don't look sour in the face. When you fast... Make your body conform to what you're trying to communicate as a disciple of Jesus. And that is, I have in God all that I need. There is no point for me frowning. I have in God all I need. I promise you, I'm not signing up for this on my own. Because there's something, there's, there's some things, there's so many things in my life that's, that, that I know I need. And to bring to language that I need God more than those things is difficult. I'm done. I want you, church, to to think about giving and praying and fasting as opportunities for you to encounter God, to, to, to confront what your relationship with God really is, what it is you really need, what it is your motivations for praying, for fasting are. 
And so I, I want you to bow your head. I want you to bow your head and, and, and to, in your own way, pray that God gives you the ability to, for, to find reward in him. Pray in your own way that God gives you the ability to pray honestly and truthfully, to forgive so that your prayers might be heard, to pray in these moments that that when we fast together, that you're reminded of your great need for him. Take a moment. Take a moment and use any of what you've heard to create a one-word prayer or a sentence prayer that you sit with. Take a moment and do that. This is difficult for us, admittedly, even when, our, even when our greatest hopes are to obey Scripture. And so as a church, as a community, I, I, wa- I want you to pray in faith. A chorus of a hymn of the church, just, I surrender all. Kelly talked about that. Kelly led us in, in, in the language of surrender earlier. Can we just sit, sit by, by asking God to give us this power, surrender to him. All to Jesus I surrender. Sing it if you know. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. I will ever love and trust in His presence freely give in His presence freely say I surrender all I surrender all Singing, I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior. All to Thee, my again, I surrender all. Oh, I surrender all. Come on, sing, sing. I surrender all. All to Thee time. You sing it. Everybody sing. I surrender all. I surrender all. 
such powerful words. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. We don't know the gravity of those words, the weight that those words hold. Surrender, complete and total surrender. It means a lot. again. This week, live in response to what you hear Jesus saying to you, knowing that the great God, the mighty God, the everlasting God is before you, pulling you, behind you, pushing you to your left and to your right, speaking truth about who you are and the power in you. Do this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and have a great week in the process. See you Wednesday night. Some of you at the members meeting later today. Bye-bye. Take care. Go home.